Welcome to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. All right, well, you guys ready to get get started? I'm sure, some, I'm sure some other people will will trickle in as we as we go. But to be honest, like even after last week. Uh, and I've actually done this before, like in the summertime. I will just do this by myself. Like I would just, it's just so good to, um, to, to just read this stuff and to read it and think about it and talk about it and, like you know. Like you would teach it out loud to Like you? I would teach it out loud to myself, you know. Like I would, I would do this. I get filled up as much as I hope you guys do from doing this kind of stuff. And, and that was one of the reasons that we started doing manna was uh, to just grow and, you know, the the people of God, the Hebrews and, and the people in the first century would, they didn't have TV, they didn't have Netflix, they didn't have radio, and they would just sit and read the scriptures out loud for hours. And that was just a discipline that they had, that was a skill that they had, and it was something that they enjoyed, and I think it's something that we really miss out on, and, you know, it's... Uh, you know, is it hard for anybody else to even, you know, sit down and read the Bible for 15 minutes straight sometimes, you know, and, and it's kind of like when you're lifting weights, you know, you've got to put a little bit more weight on there for you to really get stronger, and so if it's hard for you to do 15 minutes, well, sitting here for an hour and reading it, um, that's putting some weight on there, but hopefully that's, that stretches us, that grows us, that that makes it able for us to take in a lot more, but I would especially, I, you know, I would do this by myself with these chapters especially, because this is going to be awesome. Uh, today's today's really cool. I'm excited. So hopefully we get through everything, because if we don't, uh, it's going to be awkward. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for your time and the freedom to come and just read it out loud and, and listen to it for a sustained period of time. Thank you for um, revealing yourself to us, not keeping yourself hidden. And, and Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, uh, and that we would have hearts and ears and eyes that understand, that we would understand how holy you are, that we would understand how in need we are of grace, and that we would then appreciate how much grace you have given to us through the sacrifice of your son. And I pray that all of that would be clearly understood today. Um, and, and on this campus, God, would you send us out like you sent out Isaiah, as you send out the church to preach of your holiness and of your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in, we're in chapter 6. We're in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And so if you remember last, last time we did chapters 1 through 5, and we said chapters 1 through 5 sort of formed a, a uh, sort of an author's preference to the story. So chapters 1 through 5 are not actually where chronologically the story of Isaiah starts. We are in chapter 6 getting to the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. Okay, so Isaiah in the first five chapters is sort of painting a scene for us of this is the context. This is what Israel and Judah was like when Isaiah started ministering. And and so does anybody remember some of the things that we saw in chapters 1 through 5? What what was Israel, Judah like at the time that this book was written? Remember anything that we talked about last week? I know you've slept seven times since then, but... Anything stand out to you at all? Um, are you saying like how they were? Yeah. What were they like? They, um, they were like boasting in their sins. 
Yeah, so they were boasting. So not only were they sinful, but they were boasting in their sin. They were they thought that what they were doing was right. Um, they called what was evil good and what was good evil. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Anything we remember? Like water and wine. Yeah. So so it was like they were uh, wine that had been watered down, that they had been made defiled, and and it was almost inseparable. And then we saw this picture of God's grace that would restore them back to what they were yeah so then we saw things like they were worshiping idols right because they were worshiping idols that led to injustice in their society and it led to um, just all kinds of evils materialism greed uh, these these things working themselves out and Isaiah kind of calls them to the carpet really God calls them out he calls a court case against them remember and he says you are guilty of all of these things and and my wrath is going to come against you in the form of an invasion in the form of an army. And so we saw at the end of chapter 5, things getting darker and darker and darker. Do you remember that? So that's kind of how it ends. It's things getting darker and darker. And there's this looming, there's this question of, is God going to save them? Is God going to uh, shine light into that darkness? And so we start in chapter 6, and this is how this is how it begins. And tell Sean to be quiet. That dude's got a carrying voice we start in chapter 6 verse 1 it says in the year that king Uzziah died so that's where he's dating this happening and remember Isaiah uh, this is the start of his ministry and he says in the year that king Uzziah died Uzziah was the king of Israel in fact he was one of the strongest kings that Israel had he had conquered a lot he had fought off the Philistines he had um, fought off the Arabs. He was he had expanded their productivity. He had expanded. He was a military uh, hero. He he was a, a strong king. And what's just happened to him? He died. Okay. So think about that. As all of this darkness is mounting and and this um, threat, God is promising this threat of invasion. Well, then this really strong king that they had just died. That's where things are starting. And, and we said last week that there's a lot of evidence that Isaiah might have been like a royal courtier. He might have, had, he might have been kind of close to the political stuff that was happening. And, and up to this point, Isaiah has just been serving in that capacity. So what do you think Isaiah is thinking when this really strong king that he had has just died? He's probably kind of worried. Okay, all of Israel is probably kind of worried because they know what's going on. They, they have heard the rumblings of these other empires, of, of empires like Egypt and Assyria and, and even what's happening with the Syrians and the northern kingdom. That they've seen that there's been a lot of, a lot of war happening and their really, really strong king has just died. So that's probably all in Isaiah's mind. And that's why he calls it out that in the year that King Uzziah died, look what happened. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. What do kings sit on? Thrones. So God has taken Isaiah from worrying about the death of Israel's king into a vision where he sees the real king. Do you see that? And this is meant to comfort him in a way. This is meant to comfort all of Israel. That even though your earthly king has died... There is a greater king. But look what he sees when he sees the, the Lord, the, the heavenly king, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And above him stood the seraphim, those are like a kind of angel, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah's seen this figure, this figure of the king, and there's these angels flying around, and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. In ancient Hebrew, they didn't have punctuation marks. They didn't have exclamation points. Okay, so if, if in Hebrew they wanted to emphasize something, if they wanted to call attention to something, they would double it. That's why we have the Song of Songs. Okay, this is like the best song. Right? There's that book, The Song of Songs, where that's why we see these phrases, the King of Kings, or the Lord of Lords. That's how they would uh, add emphasis to things. Well, how many times is holy mentioned here? Three times. The holy of holy of holies is the Lord. The only thing that's described three times is God's holiness. And actually, one of the things that runs throughout the book of Isaiah is this phrase. It's very unique to Isaiah. Isaiah calls God the Holy One of Israel. And we remember what holiness is. We've, we've talked about holiness sometimes before in this, that holiness is, is set-apartness, is distinctiveness. And holiness is also purity, it's perfection, it's, it's moral goodness. And so God is so transcendent, so distinct, so good. He's three times holy, holy, holy. And the whole earth is full of His glory. And it's so much that, did you notice Isaiah never actually describes God in this? He describes His robe he describes the temple. He describes the angels. He describes everything else. But God is so glorious that he can't even look at God. He just sees all of the trappings around God. And, and everything is shaking at the voice of the one who's called their smoke. Everything. And then look at what Isaiah's response is. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the real King, the Lord of hosts. And he uses that word woe. And if you remember in chapter 5, there are a series of woes. In the back part of chapter 5, he says, Woe to those who join house to house. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. So Isaiah has declared woes on all of these other people for all of these things. But then he stands before the glory of the Lord and he says, Woe is me. For I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And this is meant to be a contrast. This is what happens when you really understand, you see unfiltered the holiness of God. As you realize your own imperfection, your own unholiness, your uncleanness. And Isaiah was just like all of the other people of Israel. And he says, I had unclean lips. And we don't know exactly what that means. Okay, maybe Isaiah uh, was, was one of those people that just had a, a tongue, you know, just had a mouth on him. 
right? Or maybe he said things, he lied, he was one of the ones that were calling things good, that were evil. We don't really know, but Isaiah himself identifies his biggest problem is with his lips. And it's especially as he's seeing all of these angels singing the praises of God, Isaiah realizes, I can't join along because my lips are unclean. And I'm from a people whose lips are all unclean. And in a way, Isaiah is sort of standing in as a representative for all of Israel right now, okay? It's meant to be that contrast as we've just looked for the last five chapters of what all of Israel is like, and then it's butted right up against the holiness of God. It's meant to condemn all of Israel. Isaiah is sort of a stand-in, and he's saying, woe is me, and we all deserve to be undone. We all are lost because we have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Okay, so Isaiah falls down, he's, he's like he's going to die, okay, he knows that he deserves wrath, he knows that he deserves punishment, he knows that he can't stand before this God, and then look what happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. There's kind of a weird thing happening in this vision, okay, because this is a vision, this is, this is, uh, God revealing himself to Isaiah in, in these visual ways, these pictorial ways, but it's not necessarily like a photograph of what's actually happening in heaven, okay? This is sort of God symbolizing things to Isaiah. And so, do you remember, it says that the Lord is sitting on a throne in the temple, and yet it also looks like heaven, and it says His glory fills the whole earth, and so he's sort of in the temple, but, he's, but it's bigger than that. It's beyond that. But in the temple, there was an altar. And do you remember what the altar was for? It was burning altar. What happened on that altar? What would you think in the temple? There's a burning altar. What would happen on that altar? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. And why did you offer sacrifices? Because you were unclean. Because you were unclean. And you offered the sacrifices as a substitute okay, to, to cleanse you. The wrath of God was poured out on that sacrifice, on that substitute, and so that you were counted clean to have access. It was like that wrath was poured out on something else instead of you. That's what this altar is, okay? And so the Lord takes a coal from that altar, okay? The, this coal, this symbol that, that there is a substitute that will atone for your sins. And look at what the angel does. He, he takes it in verse 7, and he touched my mouth. The very place that Isaiah said was unclean. He touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isn't that cool? So Isaiah sees the glory of God and he falls down like he's dead. He realizes that he deserves wrath. And then this angel reminds him, your wrath will be poured out on a substitute instead. And if you, by faith in that substitute, can be made clean then your sins will be atoned for. And that's all a picture of Jesus. That whole sacrificial system is prefiguring Christ, who's the true substitute on whom all the wrath of God was poured out. And, and I love that, that it touches his lips, okay? Because a lot of times we're brought to God and there's like one sin that really just undoes us. Okay? And it's like, this is the thing where you know, and, and you know what? There's all kinds of other sins, right? There's all kinds of other problems, but there's usually one that's like, this is my, this is my area. This is the thing that I'm most convicted of. This is... This is where I feel the most shame and the most guilt. And God usually meets us right there first. And so the angel meets Isaiah at his lips, but then he says, your guilt, all of it is taken away. So God kind of meets us where we're at, but then he cleans us all up. And I love that. But then also, all of a sudden, Isaiah's lips have been made clean. So look what happens. 
Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so this is God talking, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. So whereas before Isaiah was afraid to even look at God, he hides his face, he says, woe is me. Now that he's been made clean, he approaches God with confidence and volunteers to do God's work. And he wants to do God's work. After he's experienced God's grace, then he's excited to go out. And so he says, send me, because God has something that he needs somebody to say. And Isaiah says, I'll be the one that says it. And look at what God tells him to say. He says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. There's something really cool in this that I want to show you guys because it's going to help you um, understand a little bit about Hebrew uh, prophecies and poetry. Okay, there's, there's a couple of different... In, in Hebrew, when they would write poems, they wouldn't rhyme the words like we do. Like when we think of a poem, you know, we think we rhyme the last line and, and that's how we write poetry. Well, in Hebrew, they didn't use rhymes in sounds, but they would use rhymes in structure. Okay, and so they would use... These, these kind of structural compositions to create their poetry. And, and there's one way that they would do that, and, and it looks like this. So we've got, uh, these are the, this is what God has just said, okay? And you can see, we'll call these kind of the bookends to it, okay? These parts right here. But what you can see is, look, he says, Make the heart of this people dull. Make the ears heavy and blind their eyes. So we got hearts, ears, eyes. But then look what happens. He says, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. So you see what he did? So it goes one, or really the way that they, we would write it is A, B, C, heart, ears, eyes, and then C, B, A. Eyes, ears, do you see that? That's going to happen a lot in little small ways like this and in even big structural ways in Isaiah. And that's how they like to write. And what they do is they'll call attention to what kind of happens here. And they're calling attention to the contrast. What this is called, by the way, is called a chiastic or a chiastic structure. Chiastic. Key is the Greek word for X. So it kind of goes like this, makes an X. And so what this is really doing is it's highlighting what happens here. So he's saying, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. So they're going to hear this message that Isaiah is saying, but they're not going to understand it. Because what would happen if they did understand it? They would turn and be healed. So he's saying they're not going to hear, they're not going to understand, their eyes are going to be heavy, their ears are going to be dull, their eyes are going to be blind. But if they did turn, if they did hear, if they did understand, then they would be healed. But Isaiah, but God is saying Isaiah, telling Isaiah, they're not going to hear, they're not going to understand. So God has given Isaiah the mission of going out and preaching this gospel, this news to them, this message to them, and God's saying, but they're not going to understand. I'm going to close their ears to the message that you're giving lest they turned and would be healed. 
And Jesus says the same thing. These verses are quoted in all four Gospels. And Jesus says, this is why I speak in parables. Okay? So that the ones who will hear, will hear it. But everybody else is going to hear my parables and their ears are going to be closed to it. So God, what, how would you like that? Right? God is saying, hey, I'm calling you on a mission and it's not going to work. Will you still go for me? Will you still do that? And then you ask the question, well, why would God send him out on this mission that won't work? Why would God want them to not hear? We've seen in the first five chapters that God has wrath prepared for his people. Okay, they've sinned against him. And this is going to be kind of their, their condemnation. That Isaiah is going to go out and he's going to very clearly tell them about God's covenant and the way that they've infracted against it. And they're not going to listen. And so God will be justified when he destroys them. And so God tells that to Isaiah. And look at verse 11. Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? How long am I supposed to share this message with them and they're not going to hear it? How long, O Lord? And God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. How long? Until destruction comes through. Until invasion comes through. The same invasion that he talked about in chapter 5. Until invasion comes through, cities are destroyed, people are carried away. So Isaiah, you're going to go out, but they're not going to listen to you. And my wrath, my just wrath for their unfaithfulness will be carried out on them until they're all taken away and only a stump is left. But then look at what he says about the stump. At the very end. And the holy seed is its stump. So he's saying the stump that's left, all of a sudden you think of a stump and it's like a dead thing. Well, God sort of mixes it up and he says, but that stump is actually a seed that's going to grow again. That stump is a seed and it's not just any seed. It's not a seed like a weed. It's a holy seed. And I'm going to do something with that stump. Okay, so keep that word stump in your mind. So that's sort of Isaiah has been called out on this mission. He's going to go out and he's going to preach and people aren't going to listen and there's going to be a lot of destruction, but there is going to be a stump. There is going to be a seed. There is going to be a remnant that remains that God's going to do something with. He's already got this little promise of hope and, and growth out of that. Okay, so look at verse 7. Verse 7 now, we're going to shift. Isaiah has been called. And this is him actually going out and, and starting his ministry. And he's going to go to King Ahaz. Okay, so in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, who, who died at the beginning of chapter 6. Now we've fast-forwarded two kings to King Ahaz, who is still a descendant of Uzziah, who, is, who is, uh, was the king of Judah. Okay, so now he says King Ahaz, king of Judah. And this is also in the days of Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. So remember, Israel is divided. So Ahaz is the king in the southern kingdom. And, and uh, Pekah is the king of the northern kingdom. And, and it says that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up Jerus to Jerusalem to war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook 
as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So the king of, of Judah, Ahaz, King Ahaz, is reigning in Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom, who's going to be called Israel, they're going to be called Ephraim, they're going to be called the northern kingdom. The king of Israel, the northern kingdom, has allied with the king of Syria, another enemy, and he said, hey, you know what, let's go fight against Judah. Let's go fight against the southern kingdom. So isn't that so sad that they were once a united kingdom under David, but now there's just been a civil war, and now the northern kingdom is enlisting help from the Syrians, and they're going to come, and they're going to fight Judah. And when King Ahaz, you see where it says the house of David? As referring to King Ahaz, this is the only time in the Bible that a standing king is referred to as being of the house of David. Okay, it's calling attention. Remember that Ahaz is the descendant of King David. And it says, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. What's it say? The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Isn't that great language? They're scared. They're scared. And so what would you do? What do you do when you get scared? What do you do when you know that there's a looming threat coming? What do you do when you know that things may go very badly? How do you feel? And when you shake, where do you turn? Because what Ahaz does is he does what a lot of us do is he starts scheming. He starts thinking, how am I going to get out of this? How do I preserve myself? I'm scared and I need help. And so where am I going to go to ensure that I have security? And immediately his mind goes to Assyria. His mind goes to Assyria. Now, don't get confused. This happened to me a lot. Syria and Assyria are two different countries. Okay? And I know this is a lot of politics and geography for you right now. But remember, we have to understand the context where this isn't going to make sense. So these two countries, Syria and Israel, are going to war against Judah. And the king of Judah thinks, wait, there's this empire, the Assyrian empire, and they're even stronger than those guys. And if I can get the Assyrians to help me out, they're on the other side, and we can kind of pinch them in. And, and the Assyrians have this huge army, and they've got all these horses, they've got all these chariots. They can defend us. And so Ahaz starts thinking in his heart, oh, I'm in trouble, but there's the Assyrians, and I can turn to them for help. Look at verse 3. And the Lord says to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So this is all just stuff that's happening internally for King Ahaz, but God knows what's in Ahaz's heart. And so he says, Isaiah, says to Isaiah, Isaiah, go to Ahaz and tell him, Be quiet. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about these guys. Don't, don't try and defend yourself. Do you see where it says that he's at the, the water, the, the conduit of the upper pool on the highway? That was Israel's like main water supply so that if they were ever sieged, they would have water inside. That was Ahaz checking his bank account when he's afraid that they are going to run out of money. 
That was Ahaz relying on himself and seeing. So he's already preparing for something bad happening, and he hasn't turned to God, but he's turned to all of these earthly resources. And God sends Isaiah, and he says, man, be faithful. Don't be afraid. Because look at what's going to happen. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is another kind of Hebrew poetry. This one is called parallelism. And this is also common. And this is, you know, there's kind of a nice thing when you're hearing, you're hearing a rhyme. And you know, like when you're listening to a rap song or something, and you know that he's got... These, these rhymes at the end of the line, and so you can almost guess what the next line is going to be. And so there's sort of this satisfaction in guessing ahead of time what it's going to be. Like, it, it gets you sort of excited, and you can anticipate it. That's kind of what's happening here, okay? Because we've got the same thing. The head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So he's talking about these two countries that are going to fight against Israel, Syria and Ephraim. They've allied together, they're going to come in and they're going to fight them. And so he's saying the head of Syria is Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria. And then he says, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. That's the king of Syria. Okay? We see the same thing here. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, of Ephraim. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And so we're supposed to see these two things as a rhyme. It says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Ephraim has allied with a foreign power to try and gain strength. To try, they have put their trust in a foreign power, and God is saying, within 65 years, they're going to be destroyed. He's calling a parallel to Ahaz, who is being tempted to put his trust in a foreign people. And what does he say? If you're not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. Do you see that? So he's saying, I know what you're doing, I know what you're thinking, and this is the same thing that we do. You're tempted to put your trust in your bank account. You're tempted to go around and get some help outside of trusting the Lord, and it's not going to work. Okay? If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And this kind of forms the, the thesis statement for the rest of these chapters until the end of this section. But then there's one cool other thing to this, okay? Because we can fill in lots of other... It's like if I told you what are words that rhyme with Bob, you could come up with a whole list of them. Well, we're, we can come up with one more rhyme, and that has to do with Judah. So let's fill this in. For the head of Judah, what would be the parallel here? So we said Damascus is the capital of Syria, Samaria is the capital of Ephraim. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The head of Judah is Jerusalem. And then here, it says, in the head of Jerusalem... Remaliah, remember Pekah is the king in Samaria. Now, Remaliah is, his, is the first, the beginner of that monarchy. Okay, So he's calling attention to the one that began that dynasty, is Remaliah. 
Who began the dynasty that is sitting in Jerusalem right now at the time of Ahaz? David. So this is all calling our attention to the Messiah. It says, the head of Judah is Jerusalem, and the head of Jerusalem is the son of David. And who made David the king? God. God chose David to be the king. God has established Jerusalem as the capital of Judah. God is the one that is in charge of this monarchy. These are earthly monarchies. These are earthly powers. These have none of God's authority behind them. But Jerusalem, David, does. And so God is coming to Ahaz and he's saying, remember whose son you are. Have faith. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And I could say the same thing to each one of you guys. When you're afraid, when you're tempted, when you are looking and and doubting, remember whose son or daughter you are. If you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. That's the hope here. So God says that to Ahaz, and then in verse 10, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, Or as high as heaven. So God has made these promises. Look, don't worry about these two kingdoms. These two stumps of smoldering firebrands. These nobodies. I'm going to destroy them. You don't have to worry about them. And then he comes and he says, you want proof? Ask a sign. How many times have you ever wanted God to give you a sign? If I just knew, okay. God is coming to him and said, ask anything. And it can be anything. As high as heaven or as deep as Sheol. Just ask. Look at what Ahaz does. Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that sounds like a good answer, doesn't it? Okay, that sounds like, oh, you know, you're not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. But actually, he's using pious religious language to juke. He doesn't want a sign from the Lord. He doesn't want to believe that this is true. He's already determined what he's going to do. He's going to put his trust in Assyria. Okay, turn to 2 Kings. I promise we're going to pick up here. There's just a lot up front. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 16. Is that there? 2 Kings chapter 16 verse 5. It says, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So Ahaz sends messages to Assyria, messengers to Assyria, saying, listen to what he says, Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Not God's son, not the son of David. He's putting his faith in Assyria. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So Ahaz has already determined in his heart that he's going to put his trust in another god. He's going to say, I'm the son of a different God. I'm putting my trust in outside help. 
And so when God says, look, ask for a sign, and I will give you a sign that I'm going to take care of you. And Ahaz says, no, I don't want a sign, because I already know in my heart what I'm going to do. So look what God does. Verse 13. He said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So he's saying, fine, you won't ask for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. And it is going to be as high as heaven. And it is going to be as deep as shale. It's going to be as impossible as anything that you could ask for. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. That's going to be the sign that God will accomplish his purposes for his people. That's going to be the sign that God will be faithful to his remnant. That's going to be the sign. But as for you, Ahaz, from the time in in just a matter of one lifespan, you will fall. And I'm going to bring on you destruction that's worse than you could have ever thought. And the destruction is, right there at the end of verse 17, the destruction is actually going to come from the hands of the king of Assyria. The very God that you have put your trust in, the very king that you have put your trust in, rather than the king of heaven, the king of Assyria, he is going to be the destruction that comes against you. Whenever you put your trust in anything other than God, it's going to come back and bite you. And God is saying, you know what? You've put your trust in Assyria, but... They're going to come and they're going to conquer you. And that's exactly what happens. Assyria had a reputation for being unfaithful. And they were Judah's last hope and they betrayed him. Verse 18. And that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And in that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. That's supposed to sound like a, or that, that sounds to us like a good thing, but that's actually a bad thing, okay? All of those things that they're eating are things that just grow naturally. There's not going to be any more agriculture because they're, going to, they're so conquered by the Assyrians. And that day when the Assyrians come and conquer Judah... Every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrow a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. So he's saying, all of this stuff that I've just prophesied, this coming battle against the Assyrians that's going to devastate your land because of Ahaz's lack of faith. He says, I want you to go and I want you to write down in common characters, Mar Shalal Hashbaz, which is Hebrew. It means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. It's sort of this 
this phrase that says everything that happened is everything that I said was going to happen is going to happen and that you are going to be carried off. Your spoil is going to be carried off by Assyria. It's, it's coming. And he says, write it down and then have Uriah the priest and Zechariah attest for me. So what they're doing is they're, Isaiah's writing down his prophecy and they're notarizing it. Okay, and he's got these two reliable witnesses and they're going to seal it up and they're going to put it away until the time that it actually happens. And then they can take it out and say, look, he said that this was going to happen. That's kind of what they're talking about. But then there's more to that. Okay. Because that name, Mar Shalal Hashbaz, says, verse 3, I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord's, the prophetess, by the way, is Isaiah's wife. I'm sorry. Isaiah has a son with his wife. And the Lord says, name him Mar Shalal Hashbaz which I suggested to Kristen for the name of our baby. She didn't like it. But call his name Marshalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. We see that that's exactly what happens, is that Judah, to ensure protection from Assyria, has to give them all the money that they have in the temple. And we see that this son that he has, Marshal al-Hashbaz, is like a picture um, of the, the devastation that's going to come. His very name is a sign. And we see that he's also sort of the first fulfillment of that prophecy, that the son is going to be born. And he is going to be, uh, by the time he's old enough, all of these things will come true. And that's what happens. But the son is more than this. So look at verse 5. And the Lord spoke to me again. He says, Because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah, he's talking about the northern kingdom, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remali. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. We see that phrase, Emmanuel, again. You guys remember what Emmanuel means? We talk about it at Christmas. God with us. us. So he says, here's the sign. A son is going to be born and you're going to call his name Emmanuel. But Israel has already had this identity of, of the Emmanuel, of God being with them. That that's how they think about their God, is God is Emmanuel, God with us. And so Isaiah is giving this prophecy and he's saying, Assyria is going to come and they're going to conquer the northern kingdom and then it's going to come on into Judah and it's going to spread like the water spreads. But did you notice this? This is why I have to read it really closely, okay? It's going to overflow and pass you on, reaching even to the neck. Does it go all the way up over its head? just goes up to the neck. Assyria is going to go up to the neck, the neck of your land, Emmanuel. But that's as far as it's going to go. Look at this next part. Because now God speaks and he says, be broken, you peoples, you peoples that have come up to the neck of of Judah. Be broken and be shattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand For God is with us. Emmanuel. So he's holding on to that promise. 
that promise that God made that he is their Emmanuel. And he's also holding on to the promise of that son that will be born that is Emmanuel. And things are getting weird. And you read this in Isaiah, and Isaiah is like, I don't exactly know what is happening right now. I don't know what these prophecies are. I'm just writing down what he told me to write down. And there's something going on with this Emmanuel stuff and the son that's going to be born. It's not quite making sense. But the point is that God is not going to completely abandon Judah. It's going to go up to the neck, but he's going to keep... A little bit. But we can trust that even though the nations rage and take counsel together, it's going to come to nothing because God is with us. So look at this in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, to Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. But if you are firm in faith, if God is your fear, if God is your dread, then he will become a sanctuary. And he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, to the ones that aren't faithful. He's going to be a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. But Isaiah, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord. That's what Isaiah says. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face right now from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. We have the promises. We have the testimony. He's saying this testimony that I've given you is testimony of hope that I'm with you and it's going to be okay. Bind that up and hope in it. And when they say to you, verse 19, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Don't go to necromancers. Don't go to spiritists. Don't go to worldly wisdom. Don't go to all these other places. Where do you go? To the teaching and to the testimony, to the word of God. He says, if these other people will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They're as good as dead. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. There's that darkness theme again. So this is all tied together from the first five chapters. Things are bad and they're getting worse. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of things happening. And and Isaiah and his few disciples and his sons, there's just a small remnant that are actually listening to God. Does that sound familiar? This little group of faithful people and everything else is going to hell. And then when things actually do go to hell, when things actually do go bad... Instead of turning to God, they're just going to turn on each other. And it's just going to get worse. And they're going to mutter against each other. And things are going to get bad. But the whole time, there's this little remnant sitting there. And they have the teaching. They have the testimony. They have the promises. So even though everything else is getting dark all around them, they have hope. He says, the Lord is our fear. The Lord is our trust. We're going to put all of our trust in Him. We're going to be firm in faith. And we're just going to wait. And even though it's getting darker and darker and darker, we're just going to wait. And look at chapter 9. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This is their hope. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
to the very northern part of Israel. Anytime Israel would get invaded, the armies would come through Zebulun and Naphtali. And the time that Jesus was born, you know what Zebulun and Naphtali came to be known as? Galilee. So he's saying, the northern part of Israel that later becomes Galilee, okay, that is identified with that part, formerly they were in anguish. They were the ones that always got their butts kicked when the armies came in. Formerly they were in anguish, they were in gloom. But in the latter time, okay, this is future from Isaiah, in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So he's saying the people who walked in darkness in Galilee, who have been waiting in faith as things are getting dark around them, all of a sudden they've seen a great light. This is all future. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his oppressor, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So even though they were in darkness and they were mourning, all of a sudden there's going to be light and there's going to be joy. Joy like when there's a harvest all over again. Joy like when they're reaping from all of their agriculture and joy like they've conquered in a battle. Joy, overflowing joy. Why? Because God has destroyed their oppressor. How? Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And then Isaiah's like, oh, this is the son that will be born of the virgin. That will be called Emmanuel. This is the son. And we are going to wait. And even though things are getting bad. We're waiting for this son to be born. And he knows. That this son is going to be a son. In the same line as that he's been talking about. In the line of David. Because look it says. The government shall be on his shoulders. Only his name shall be called. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. This son that's born. He's not going to be like Ahaz, unfaithful. He's not going to be like all the other kings. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. Wonderful almost means supernatural. He's going to be a supernatural counselor. He's going to be a mighty God himself. He's going to be everlasting father. He's going to rule us like a parent cares for us. He's going to be the prince of peace. There's not going to be war. There's going to be peace. And verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that has all been a prophecy that God has given to Judah, to the southern kingdom. Now we're going to get into this next part. And we're just going to read. This is a lot more straightforward. There's a lot of stuff that we had to pick out of that. Isaiah is going to shift focus because he is a prophet to many different peoples. And so he's just prophesied to the southern kingdom. Now he's going to prophesy to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom that has just set their hearts to fight against Judah. And this is what God says to them. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob. And it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. 
But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west will devour Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So God has brought already calamity on them, calamity in the form of natural disasters. That's why the bricks have fallen, the earthquake, but he's also brought enemies against them. But he says, even for all of that punishment, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So next, we're going to get in this next stanza and we're going to see that, that their, their leaders, their political structure is going to collapse. The people did not turn to him who struck them. They did not inquire of the Lord of hosts, so the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and their widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. And for all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. So their leaders are going to be given over to evil. And they're going to uh, be corrupt. And they're going to make bad decisions. And they're going to take advantage. And they're not going to lead people in the way that they should go. So things are going to get worse. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll up upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. So as the leaders have gone down, suddenly everybody turns against everybody else. They slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. They were brothers. So brother is turned against brother, and together they're against Judah. And yet, for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may take the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come up from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What we've kind of seen is this picture of God is releasing his care his protection that the northern kingdom wants to rebel against god they want to go and they want to do evil and so god lets them do evil and we sort of see the the corrosion that comes out of that the destruction their leaders go bad they turn on each other things get worse until it's the point where where not only are they doing evil but they're actually writing evil into their laws and it's just devastating but god says that that passive wrath is not enough His anger is still not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. And did you hear that refrain every single time? Anger and hand. We're going to see what it means when God finally closes that anger. When he finally closes that hand. Look at verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. And the staff in their hands is my fury. So not only is he going to let the passive wrath devastate them, but he's going to use Assyria to carry out 
his wrath on Israel, the northern kingdom, completely. It's, we said it went up to Judah's neck. It's going to completely overtake Assyria. And that's what happens. The northern kingdom falls completely to Assyria. They are taken completely away into exile. They are destroyed. And they never really come back. Okay? Because of their evil. He says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. This is Assyria. Assyria doesn't intend to do God's will in this wrath. Okay? He, in his heart, does not think that this is God doing this. It says, but it's just in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? He's saying, I've conquered these guys. I can conquer these guys. Every one of those cities is more north than the second one. And so he's turning his sights on Samaria. He says, I've already conquered Damascus. What is Samaria? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So God's saying, I'm going to use Assyria to do this, but Assyria doesn't think it's God doing anything. They think I'm the reason that I'm so great. So in verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, for Assyria says, this is what he says in his heart, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down like those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. But this is God's response to that king. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses in Isaiah. God just asks this king that's so boastful. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify himself against the one who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? God's saying, Assyria, you're just my tool. Can a tool boast over the one that's using the tool for his purposes? As awesome as you think you are, you're nothing were it not for God accomplishing these purposes. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become like a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour, and his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can ride them down. So Israel is going to be destroyed by Assyria, and then God is going to destroy Assyria. And that's also exactly what happens, that the Assyrians get conquered by the Babylonians. And in that day, The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return. Which happens to be Isaiah's first son's name. Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people's Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Love this. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness 
For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Syrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He's going to end this last part, and he's going to describe the invasion of the Assyrians as they come to Judah. He's going to describe it as them getting closer and closer. Each one of these cities gets a little bit closer to Judah, okay? It's a little bit closer to Jerusalem. He has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night, and Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. He says, Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Liash, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gabim will, will flee for safety. This very day, he will halt at Nob, he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So Assyria has come in to invade Jerusalem, but God has just given them this promise ahead that he's not going to let it happen. He's going to deliver them just like he delivered them from Egypt. He's going all the way back to the beginning. Assyria has come up to the very foot of Jerusalem. They're shaking their fists. And look at verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts, the God who wields Assyria like an axe, will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low, and he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Now you guys stick with me, okay? We haven't even been doing this for an hour yet. Remember we said we're growing, we're stretching, because this is where it gets awesome. All of this has happened. There's a lot of war. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of stuff. We are seeing that for all of this, God is sovereign. He's above it. And for everything that's going on, he's got favor for Judah. And even though he's going to carry out wrath against Judah, he's going to preserve a remnant. There is going to be a stump. And look at verse chapter 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, the stump is a seed, and there's going to be a shoot that comes up from the stump. And you remember who Jesse was? Who's Jesse? David's dad. Okay? So Ahaz was a son of David, but now we're going all the way back, and he's saying there's going to be a shoot that comes up, and he's going to be another David. He's going to have the same father that David did. So there's going to be a shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So there's going to come a king that's just like David and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. All of this has come upon Judah because Ahaz did not fear the Lord. But we're going to get another king whose delight will be the fear of the Lord, who, who will delight in obedience. He will be an everlasting father, a prince of peace, a wonderful counselor, a mighty 
God. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with iniquity or decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And after he has put all of his enemies under his feet, look what's going to happen to the whole world. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze together, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the axe, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurry or hurt or destroy. And all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus will be so much the prince of peace that even wolves and lambs will play together. And completely transform the whole world. And that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. So it's not just Judah anymore, but it's all the nations. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. But not just from Judah, but from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea that God is going to call a remnant to himself that's going to consist of his people from all the nations. And they're all going to come together. Guys, who's that? That's the church. That's what we saw in Ephesians 2. That in that day when Jesus comes to make everything better, he's going to call this nation together and he will raise a signal for the nations and assemble the banished of Israel that gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim. There won't be any hostility anymore. There won't be any division between these different people. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. Together they shall plunder the peoples of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab. And the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. He will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. But not only is our king going to conquer all of our enemies and bring peace, he's also going to be that atoning sacrifice. This is where it all comes together. This is why we have to get to chapter 12 or none of this makes sense. Remember, Isaiah was the stand-in for Israel. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I know that I deserve wrath. I know that this is coming, but there's a sacrifice that makes you clean. And how did Isaiah respond after God cleaned him? That's what chapter 12 is. Chapter 12 is what Isaiah was a stand-in for. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation, and I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Remember Isaiah? Who am I going to send? Here I am. Send me. The church now is all of 
Isaiah. We are the ones that have seen the glory of God, have had our sins atoned for. We know that God is angry with us, but His anger has turned away. And so this is, says, you will say, go out, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. This is this little section. This is evangelism. You have been forgiven of your sins. Go out and tell people, call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. And sing praises to the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. Sing praises to the Lord. For He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So everything that happened in chapter 6 with Isaiah is a bigger picture of what happens through the rest of those chapters. Do you see that? And we are the ones that are saved like Isaiah was. Through that atoning sacrifice, our guilt has been taken away. And God is saying to you, now that you have seen my holiness, and now that you have experienced my grace, can I send you? You know how bad it could have been. You know that you are undone. But I have made a way through the Son that was born of a virgin, God with us. And He is your King already. He is reigning already. You have hope in Him. Fear the Lord. But can I send you? Even if it's to a people that is dull of hearing, can I send you to say, give thanks to to the Lord. Call upon His name. Can I send you to make known my deeds amongst all the peoples, all these nations that I'm calling from the ends of the earth to myself? Can you proclaim that His name is exalted? Can you go and tell everyone that He's holy, holy, holy? Isn't this awesome? Let's pray. God, thank you for sparing us, even though we deserve wrath. Thank you for cleansing us through the atoning sacrifice that is your son. Thank you for the, not just the hope of your son that Isaiah had, but the fulfillment of your son. That a virgin did conceive and bear a son. That he was God with us. And that he is wonderful counselor he is our mighty God he is like an everlasting father he is the prince of peace he is our peace our faith in him brings us peace even when everything else is getting dark God help us to hold fast to your word and to remember that there are greater promises still we wait for that day when the wolf lies down with the lamb we wait for that day when you conquer all of your enemies and bring them under the under your feet and Lord please now And this time, until then, would you help us all go out and proclaim. Praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the nations. God, you are holy, holy, holy. I pray that our lives would reflect that encounter that we've had with you. In Jesus' name, amen.